chapter, looking at Noah as he walked with God. We begin reading in chapter 6 and verse number 8. The Bible says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in all his generations. And Noah walked with God. Father, help us now as we come to the Word of God and as we allow it to change us. May we see and know the life of this man who lived so long ago. And may we see what that life accomplished. We live in a fallen world. We're no different than Noah. We read of his life that it was only evil continually. That was the backdrop. That's the environment that he was living in. And we feel that way today. There's a lot of evil in this world. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be those that do good unto all men. May we be able to accomplish that. Help us this morning as we look at faith in the life of Noah, as we looked at grace last week. Plus, in this hour, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus asked his generation this question in Luke chapter 18 and in verse 8. He said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? That's the question for us this morning. We're looking at generating faith today, and not in the sense that we have to generate it, but the fact that faith actually motivates and actually moves us. The generating faith that is in our life, that which makes us alive. We noted last week that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We found in this very verse number 8. The grace that is found is amazing, especially because of the condition of the world in which Noah lived. It was a godless backdrop, we noted in last week's sermon, that made Noah's genuine belief in the benevolence of God even more remarkable. It is from grace being found to generating faith that we now come. Faith always follows grace in the Word of God. Faith cannot precede it. The grace of God must appear to all men, as Paul wrote to Titus. And when Jesus Christ came, then we could properly place our faith and trust in Him. Could Noah? And the answer is, Noah had the same generating faith in the same gracious God, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah as we look back to His coming. Within that context, we noted last week how bad the world around Noah was. I cannot imagine what the belief system or the belief of that age might have been like in Noah's day. But I can tell you this, they weren't cavemen. The Darwinian evolution tells us that man came from a pre-Neanderthal into a Neanderthal into what we have today as we develop slowly over time. And so it takes us from a very slow-thinking incompetent human being of sorts to what we are today. Well, the Word of God says something completely different, and that's an element of faith. You either believe one worldview or you believe the other worldview. The two can't coexist or cohabitate. And so as we come to this, we have to understand what the world was like in his day. I believe they were highly sophisticated and perhaps quite advanced. Now, you might respond by saying, well, but Kyle, they didn't survive the flood. They couldn't be that advanced. Remember, they'd never seen rain. According to history and the Word of God and the, what we're told, 
The protected covering of earth and the deep waters of the earth, below the earth's surface were ruptured according to the word of God that we read here. And so the world was destroyed. This was beyond any human imagination or possibility. By the way, it wasn't beyond God's thoughts. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, as the Bible says. The foolish faith of man in himself is found in Cain and his line from Genesis 4. Now, we will get to Noah, I promise you, and we will get to his generating faith, but I must at least set the context of where that faith came from and what that faith was founded in. Just like last week, why was grace so great when it was found in Noah? It's because no one else had it. And what makes faith so remarkable here in the life of Noah and in his walk with God that helps us today, it's because no one else trusted in the living God. Go back to chapter 4 with me. We're not going to do a lot of reading, but I'm going to do a lot of pointing out. You can certainly search the scriptures and see if they are true, like the Berean believers did. In verses 1 through 5 of Genesis chapter 4, we find Adam and Eve having children after the curse and the fall in the garden. And we find in verses 1 through 5 that Cain, that godless line of men, worshipped God the wrong way. In verses 6 through 8, Cain went on to actively try to destroy true worship of God. Here's what the Bible says in verse 6. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why are you upset? Why is thy countenance fallen? In other words, he is saying to Cain when his offering and worship was rejected because Cain tried to bring it in his own power, in his own way. God said, listen, I've established worship of me in a certain way. You can't just do it any way you want. And why are you bothered by this? I'm God, your man. Again, as man, we think of God and say, well, I want him to be in my own image. That's exactly what Cain thought. That's why he was wrong. He says this in verse 7, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And he says, look, if you do what is right by the way that I've prescribed it, by the way that I have chosen as God, you'll be accepted just like Abel was. If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. In other words, the principle here is, you want this one thing, but you can't have this thing. God will be an authority in your life when you come to worship him in the wrong way. It will not be accepted. If you were to move through verses 9 through 16, Cain becomes a wanderer because he murdered his brother. The first family had the first murder. You would have thought we would have made it a couple generations before people became murderers. But we didn't. Our race truly is fallen from grace. In verse 17, we pick up our reading again. So to set the context, Cain worked to replace God. And in his fallen state, in his rejective state, in his state of opposition to Almighty God, we begin to see that he builds a civilization. This is the civilization that Noah is dwelling within. This is the people. These are those that lived then. Again, historically, we know from the Word of God, we know from from the oral traditions passed down after the ark, these before the flood lived for hundreds of years. The environment seemingly was different. You say, were you there? Do you know? And I say no to that, but the Bible tells me so. And my response to someone asking that will be, were you there? Do you know? And the answer is we have to take it by faith. That's why this message is about that. Here's what it says in verse 17. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bare Enoch. This is not the Enoch who walked with God that was in the line of Seth. The name Enoch, and in the Old Testament specifically, names have great meaning. The name Enoch means teaching or initiation of instruction or that which is begun. 
And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Erad, and Erad Mahuajel, and Mahuajel begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. Again, different Lamech from chapter 5, and some of you are saying, I'm just glad you could say those names. Verse 19, And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Adah bare Jabal. He was the father of such as dwell in tents and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding, or one that tried to kill me, one that wounded me, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. The Bible goes on and then begins to give the line of Seth. Simply to say, he works to replace God. You say, well, pastor, I'm not sure if I understand that. He names his son Enoch. That simply means teaching or my teaching, not God's. Remember, he's walked away from God. God's rejected his worship. He's not sought forgiveness. He's murdered his brother. And so he names his son my teaching, my philosophy, the initiation of my way of thinking. He starts by naming his son Enoch. He goes on to name a city after his son Enoch. In other words, this is the location where all of my way of living and all my way of thinking and all the teachings and philosophies that I believe, this is where it will be centered. That city was the seat of all folly of man's intellect in the pre-flood world. The world looked to that city to learn how they ought to behave and how they ought to live. Cain's lineage would become the power brokers in the pre-flood world. We find that Cain's line were progressively more ruthless. A lesson, perhaps, in progressive thinking. What was taught or initiated in the teaching with Enoch? And the answer is the rebellion against God, which would lead to the removal of God from society and the lives of men. There's nothing truly new under the sun. The progressives of our day are focused on the very same game plan. Remove God because they reject God. Lamech. The fifth in the line of Cain claimed himself wiser and mightier than all who ever came before him. If Cain would be avenged sevenfold for murdering Abel, then he would be avenged seventy-sevenfold. Progressives and progressive thinking always believes that their generation is the greatest, smartest, and most talented to ever live, and that all who came before them are fools to be rejected and ultimately replaced. It's what we see propagating in our culture today in this country. Now, this isn't a political message, so I'll move off that. The direct descendants of this madman literally take over every area of societal life, this man Lamech. Jabal, his son, is the cash king, we might say. He was in charge of everything from tents to cattle to crops. Every material good of this world flowed through and in his control and influence, we're told in the word of God. Jubal, his brother, was the cultural king. From his harp, which means a stringed instrument, to an organ, which is a piped instrument, all the entertainment of society flowed through him. Tubal-Cain is the construction king. 
from iron to brass, all resources and all minerals that were to make life easier and more productive and safer came through him. This family was, wasn't just a dynasty. They were the first world empire. And you have to ask yourself, how did this come to be known? And the answer is through Noah and his family after the flood. Their oral tradition, looking back before the flood and to the events before the flood, marked this man Lamech as the height of Canaic living or thinking. The teachings and philosophies of a godless man, Cain, come to Lamech and his three sons literally dominate the entire world. Their influence five and six generations removed from Cain was dominant and ubiquitous, save for three families, according to the Word of God. We find when reading chapters 5 and 6 of Genesis that Seth, the godly line, struggled to be extracted from Cain's line as well. In Genesis chapter 5, we find that each godly son mentioned had sons and daughters, but only the direct line to Noah remained faithful. They're the only ones named. It's hard When the whole world has gone chasing after sin. But it's extremely hard to live by faith when your family and friends who know better do the same things as the godless world. It is this small flame of truly faithful that draw us to Noah this morning. All the other sons and daughters find no mention because they were not faithful to the true God of heaven. They made themselves gods in their own minds, gods of their own worlds. Their faith was in themselves and their own efforts. And this is a deep Bible lesson taught very early in the Word of God. There is no faith in you. There's nothing to trust in you. Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, the prophet Jeremiah wrote. Who can know it? Who can trust it? Certainly not you. A few years ago, I noted in a study of the book of Genesis what the etymology of the ten names from Adam to Noah mean. The godly line tell us a truth about God's plan of salvation. Now, I put that in your notes this morning. You have them in front of you. Adam's name means man. Seth means appointed. Enos means mortal. Canaan means Sorrow. Mahalio means the blessed of God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching or instruction. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means despairing. And Noah means comfort and rest. Do you think they were named by accident? Put all of their names, the ten generations, in sequence together, and here's a complete sentence, and we find the plan of salvation. Man is appointed mortal sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. Those are the first ten faithful men who lived in this world. And that's what God wanted to teach us. It comes to and culminates in Noah and what happens in the flood. We often find in this world people dismiss or disbelieve the flood as being real. But may I say to you, a solid faith says it happened If for no other reason, then God said so. But I can tell you there are countless geological findings that speak to a worldwide flood that describe why we have limestone in Kentucky, which should be found on the coastlines. There's countless other things that you could put your finger on. But for no other reason, it's faith in the Word of God that teaches us this is so. 
It is within this life of Noah, within this context of the world, that we find Noah's generating faith. By generating this morning, I simply mean that which causes another thing to come about. God saved Noah by His grace. Noah trusted God's grace completely, and that saved him and his family. Thus, his faith is a worthy study for us this morning. Noah is a study in milestones of faith that must be equally true in our generation, in our faith today as well. First, generating faith rescues us in our outlines. We're going to walk through the life of Noah just as we did in the grace of God and see where God's grace came in. We're going to see where Noah had to engage his faith. If we're going to study a character, we need to know what his thinking was, what his context was, who he was. It does you very little good to learn of a historical figure, let alone a biblical figure, without knowing within what context they find themselves. We find that Noah is a man in need of a rescue. There is calamity coming. There is trouble that is brewing. We read last week, and you'll see if you look in Genesis chapter number 6 and verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What does it rescue us from? Well, the first thing it rescues us from is doubt. Doubt. Could you imagine, as we noted last week, there were probably some 10 to possibly as many as 16 billion people. In fact, it's interesting, the other day I was reading an article, probably a month ago, that scientists say that the earth can only sustain 12 to 16 billion people, and that is if we are all spread out and use every square meter or square acre, I should say, to its proper use. It could only sustain 16 billion. So in the pre-flood world, when the world was all together and the continents had not broken apart, it is very likely that they could have sustained equal amounts. By the way, someone asked me after last week, how do you think they had that many kids, Pastor? Look, if you could bear children until you were 800... Some of the ladies in here are like, oh, gracious, please no. (laughs) I mean, today in the modern world, a woman goes into a high-risk pregnancy when she enters her late 30s. And most of humanity is shocked if they hear someone in their late 40s has a child. But these individuals could have children. Let's say they had one kid every 10 years. That's 10 every 100 years, and if they could bear for 800 or more years, that's 80 kids. And then the next generation could have it. It was very easy to understand, even to postulate, that the population of the earth could have exploded in a very short window of time. We also noted that it was 1,600 years from Adam's departure from the garden, his creation, his departure from the garden, until the flood. And so as we understand this, there is a lot of doubt in the world. There was a lot of groupthink that was going on. There was a lot of family pressure and traditions. But Noah was able to walk faithfully with his God. How? It's because he overcame the doubt. Look in verse 13. We'll begin to see how faith rescues us from doubt. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. In other words, time's up. For the earth is filled with violence through them. It's by their choice, he's saying. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. In other words, I'm going to reform, reshape. This world will not look the same when we come out of this. That's what it means when he's destroying it with the earth. 
Verse 14, make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. The pitch here is just an oil tar slime that would cover the ark to make sure that there was no leaks in the boat. The point is, there were countless times in Noah's life where his family could have doubted God. But we find this in verse number 22. After God approaches him and says, this is what's going to happen. This is what you must do to be saved. He then comes to verse 22, or we come in our reading to verse 22. Thus did Noah. According to all that God commanded him, so did he. That's faith. That's trust. That's belief. Do you believe in the God of heaven? Do you believe that what he reveals when he speaks to you? Today he speaks through his word. What he reveals to you through his word is true. If so, then why don't you obey? Why don't you act? The next verse is equally important. The beginning of chapter 7, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come, thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. If you kept reading from verses 2 through 9, Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives and all of the animals that God of their kind that God had told them to bring into the ark, they all enter into the ark. In other words, it's another act of faith. They are rescued from doubt as they act in faith. We live in a culture, we live in a time, we live in an age where everyone is motivated by doubt and fear. The only way for a Christian to live, the only way for a believer in God through the person of Jesus Christ to live is to live by faith, not by fear. The Apostle John said this in 1 John chapter 4, Perfect love casteth out fear. Do you believe that? It sets aside all phobia. The word fear is just phobia in the original Koine Greek. Do you believe that it sets aside all phobias, all fears? Faith can do that. It rescues us from the doubt. I just don't know the way to heaven. God says, I've made it clear. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, the words of Jesus. Here, the way to new life, the way to live, the way to be rescued, the way to be saved was God said, build an ark. God said, get on the ark. God said, stay in the ark. And Noah said, yes, sir. By faith, I believe. There were likely countless times, as I said, when Noah and his family doubted whether it was right, the right course of action, or if the flood was really ever going to happen. In the early chapter 6, we're told it's 120 years from God's entering into the conversation of ending or destroying man because of their perpetual wickedness. And we find that in that time, it's probably 80 to 90, maybe 100 years, that Noah himself is actually building the superstructure of the ark. But it is in that time that doubts can creep in. By the way, there's a lot of people as they come to faith in Jesus Christ, don't know what is true, and the doubts will keep them from that. They likely had doubts about the massive shape and the structure. They had doubts probably about the capacity and perhaps even the veracity that the ark would have to withstand a storm that they had never seen or heard of before. But faith, my friend, overcomes doubt. It is true for us today. We doubt that such a simple plan of Jesus coming, Jesus dying, and Jesus being resurrected is sufficient to save us from our sins. But that's what this book tells us. You're going to find throughout this message that Noah's faith in God's word that the ark would save him is the same as our faith that the cross will save us. 
It is the ark that carries us from death unto life. And that's exactly what the ark did for Noah. Beyond salvation, for those believers gathered in this morning's service, we doubt whether we need to avoid worldly living. Sometimes we doubt whether this, this little sinful activity is really going to hurt us or harm us. I can tell you it will. Don't doubt that God hates sin. It is faith that removes doubt. We never read that Noah doubted. That's a wonderful truth of this passage. But we also know that he was human. We read of his failings after the flood, not before them. But his faith in any moment of doubt was able to overcome that doubt so that he could trust in the saving grace of God, which was prepare an ark. Do what I've asked you to do. Just believe. Faith also rescues us, let her be, from death. Sometimes in church you have these duh moments, I like to tell my kids. If it's truly salvation, it's got to save us from dying. It's got to be salvation, else it isn't. Look in verse 10. The Bible says it came to pass, oh, chapter 7, forgive me. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. It means it began. If you go down to verse number 18, you read this in chapter 7. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters, or on top of them. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. By the way, I wrote in the margin of my Bible, 22 and a half feet. Not that that matters, but a cubit is 18 inches. And the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping thing and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth, period. Oh, no, wait, it's a colon. It means the continuation of the sentence and the thought is going. And Noah only remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark. All flesh died except for Noah. That is a horrible thought. It's a terrifying thought. But can I tell you, God will not put up with sin. He hates it. I often will talk to friends of mine or folks that I know that don't believe in Jesus Christ, and I have many. And I will say to them, if sin isn't that bad, and maybe they believe in a God or they believe in a divine power, if sin isn't that bad, then why would God have to come and die for it? And the answer is because sin is that bad. Well, I don't feel like mine is. Can I tell you, if you're the only person that ever lived in this world, Jesus would have to come and die for just your sin. All flesh, we're told, died in this judgment in the flood. Faith in God's gracious salvation, however, saves us from that death. I alluded to this passage last week in Ephesians chapter 2 on grace, but here it is as it applies to faith. Ephesians 2 verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened. That word quickened just means made alive. He hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us 
through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace is only yours through faith. The grace of God is available to all, but it only becomes mine when I in faith believe it. Noah in his day understood that grace was found in him. But if he had not built the ark, if he had not entered into the ark, if he had not remained on the ark, he would not have been rescued from death. He would have died like everyone else. The living in the world of Noah were condemned already to death. In fact, Noah's life, the Bible will tell us, was actually the picture of condemnation to them. His faithfulness to God was condemning to them in their faithless rejection of God. Here's what the Bible says in Hebrews 11 and verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, or proper reverence and respect is that word in the original language, prepared an ark. Why? To the saving of his house. He wanted to be saved from death. By the which or by the saving of his house and the faith he exercised in God, he condemned the world. Did Noah go out and tell everybody that they're going to hell and they're terrible? No, he just said, I have faith in God. If you want to live, get on this boat. But all of them that rejected, the first moments those drops were falling and those waves were cresting and the water was rising, all of them were immediately condemned. Why? Because they had rejected God. They stood literally and sank condemned. He became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith, the Hebrews writer tells us. Noah, interestingly enough, was raised above the waters of destruction through faith. The idea of condemnation is equally given to us by our Savior Jesus Christ Himself. When He's speaking to Nicodemus, a religious man, one who was very concerned with the things of God, He said this in John 3 and verse 17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him, that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. You're in your current state. The only way you remove yourself from death and move into life is to trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus is saying. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because the days of Noah were there. Their deeds were evil. It's exactly what was said in the days of Noah. This morning, the cross of Jesus Christ is your ark. It's your only hope. Like Noah building that structure and scaffolding, I'm here to herald or proclaim to you what the truth is. You must be born again. You must believe in the Son of God. Do you trust that Jesus died for your sins? If so, you enter into a relationship as that salvation comes. Faith rescued Noah from doubt and death, and it will do the same for us. But second in our outlines, we find that faith readies us. By readies, I simply mean it prepares us. It makes us suited for an activity or action that is needed. Genesis chapter 8 has always been a fascinating chapter uh, in the Bible to me. What did did Noah do on the ark for a year and ten days? You ever wonder that? It's a lot of Yahtzee. I mean, he had a worn-out deck of solitaire cards. 
The Bible says in chapter 7 and verse 11, he went in on April 17th of his 600th year. The second year in the Jewish calendar is April to May. My son Nate told me after church this morning, hey, my birthday's April 17th. I said, well, good, the flood will begin on your birthday. In chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, it says on April 27th of the year, 601 of his life, that they come off the ark. That's 110 days. That's three or 100. And, excuse me. One year and 10 days. 370 days by the Jewish calendar. Noah didn't just exercise faith in building and entering the ark. It was necessary for him to exercise faith in the passage and journey on the ark. Once we trust Jesus Christ to rescue us, we must ready ourselves for the whole journey with Him. That's the faith of Noah. It needs to be our faith as well. You and I, friend, after salvation, are riding that ark today. Faith readies us then on our journey for discouragement. You say, well, that's not a real positive message. I'd like to tell you that everything is just happy-go-lucky, daisies and tulips popping up everywhere, but the story is a rainy one. There's a seemingly cloudy day or 40 days in the story if you read it. Life and the Christian life can be one of despair, despondency, and discouragement. Sometimes those Bible words are all blended together in modern psychology and called depression, and the answer is that's real. Christians shouldn't be afraid of talking about that. It's an element of who we are. We're, both, we're uh, threefold beings, body, soul, and spirit. We are physical, emotional, and spiritual, you might say. I wonder what Noah felt like emotionally and spiritually day by day on that ark. I have no doubt there were tears shed for those who rejected God's gracious offer of salvation. The Bible tells us that when he came up into the ark, that God shut the door. He closed them in. The end of verse number 16 in chapter number 7. In shutting them in, he has sealed the fate of those both inside the ark and those outside the ark. And I have no doubt that there was a lot of discouragement in the heart of Noah and Mrs. Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives, of all of those in the world that they had rubbed shoulders with, gal pals, people they had gone shopping with, people they had spent time with, people that their kids had grown up with. There had been lots of people who had rejected what the truth was, and Noah did not hate them. And by the way, believer today, we should not hate any person that does not yet know Jesus Christ. We also shouldn't hate somebody that does know Jesus Christ. Our objective is to love them. But I have no doubt there was deep discouragement in the heart of Noah as he rode on that boat thinking, they're all dead. They're all gone. Every single one of them. You want to talk about generating faith? It had to come back to faith that motivated him to continue, not to just be positive, but to be grateful that he had received the grace of God and that he had found himself on the ark by the faith that he had in that God. 
Noah had shared his faith with them. He had lived it out before them. But none of them had trusted in God's message of salvation, in the destruction that would come. None of them joined him on the ark. And while that was a great discouragement to him, there was hope hidden in it. God is a God who will keep his word. I'm sure there might have been frustration. There might have even been a tinge of guilt. I could have done more to save them. Can I tell you this? It is not your job to get anybody saved. I cannot talk anybody into heaven. No matter how many times people might say, Pastor, if you'll just come over and tell them how to go to heaven, I know they'll get saved. And I often will follow with, I'll come over and tell them what the truth is in this life. But it's not, I can't make someone get saved. Nobody made me get saved. It was my faith. It was that generating faith in me and trusting in Jesus Christ. That could have been some of the discouragement. But it was Noah's faith in God, and in particular the grace of God, that readied him and steadied him for any discouragement or disappointment that might come, that might have been present in and on that ark. May I say, in your Christian life, there's going to be a lot of times where you might become discouraged in relationships. You might become discouraged in circumstances or situations. If your faith is in God, rest in that faith faith. It's what Noah had to trust while he was floating on top of the waters. But letter B, it readies us for deliverance. For Noah, it was a year and ten days. For us, getting saved happens like that. We pray and ask Jesus Christ. We recognize we're a sinner. If you haven't come to that point, then there's no sense in asking Jesus to save you from something you don't even recognize. I recognize I'm a sinner, and God, I'm asking that Jesus Christ's blood that was shed be my payment for my sin. I'm asking Jesus to save me from my sins. However you want to word it, however you want to pray it, that prayer happens like that. For Noah, it was a little bit different. It was a year and ten days of floating, but the process or what we learn from it is still the same. While we're in that life of faith, there is true deliverance. It breaks the power of sin, doesn't it? You can go and read Romans chapter 6 and 7 and you will find the great Apostle Paul, the godly man that he is, that wrote a good portion of the New Testament. He makes this statement at the end of chapter 7. He effectively says, the things that I should do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? That's a great thought, isn't it? Because you find yourself there. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you find yourself there. But it's a prayer of deliverance. The answer is, but I thank God for Jesus Christ my Lord. That's how he finishes it. I have no doubt that no one in his family wondered if the journey on the boat would ever end. When the fullness of that deliverance into the new world and the new life would come. Christian believer, do you not sometimes wonder that? How long this sojourn will be? How long this passage, this voyage will last? We might find ourselves at some point saying, oh, even come Lord Jesus. I can't take it anymore. This world is wicked and friends, it is. But the reminder, our faith tells us there is Immediate deliverance from the death, and there is also coming deliverance into the newness or the fullness of that new life. That's a wonderful picture on the ark. The 17th day of the seventh month in September, the ark stopped floating. But he didn't get off. 
If you keep reading in chapters 8 and 9, you find there's a little bit more time of development that takes place. There were signs that the end was near. I don't know that Noah was walking around the boat with a breadboard that says the end is near, trying to scream it in Times Square, but the point is, the end was near. The Bible tells us in chapter 8 that he takes a raven and a dove. There's a wonderful study in another day for that. The raven is a picture of the unclean bird. It's a scavenger. It's a picture of our old flesh. He sends that old bird out, and it lands somewhere on a log and starts picking at the dead carcasses, but it never comes back. That's a good picture, because when you come off the ark, the old man should be dead. But he sends out a dove. He sends out a dove three times. The dove isn't a carrion. It's not going to go out and pick at the dead flesh. The dove goes out, and it comes back. Couldn't find anything. The second time the dove goes out and it comes back, it brings an olive branch, sign of life. The third time he sends the dove out in chapter 8, the dove goes and it never comes back, which means it either died or it had found new life, and it found that new life. The dove, in its sending and its coming, brought life and peace. The olive branch was life, and the dove being safe on her own gave Noah the peace that when God said, you can depart the ark, it's time to depart the ark. Who is a symbol of the dove in the New Testament? The picture is the Holy Spirit of God. He resides within us, and He's the one that ensures us of life and peace. Faith rescues us from doubt and death. Faith readies us for discouragement and deliverance. But finally, faith rewards us. In chapter 8 and verse 13, Noah removes the covering of the ark. Oh, that's an interesting verse. Who put the covering on it? God did. Chapter 7 and verse 16 At the end, the Lord shut him in. He put the covering on. But what does God say for us in this new life that we have? You have the freedom to choose. You've got the liberty to live the life that you choose to live. You can be anything within God's will you want to be. And if you violate it, there's a punishment that comes. He allows for Noah to open the ark's door. It tells us that our life is ours to live. Noah is stepping out of the ark and into the newness of life. His faith-filled choices that led to the ark should now lead him out from the ark, God is teaching us. That is generating faith. Faith is rewarded. That's an essential principle of the Christian life. But remember that from the outset of his faithful calling, Noah had now been actively following the Lord's clear instruction for well over 100 years. The reward for faith in your life may take time. Take your time. Trust the Lord. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 tells us at the end of that verse that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. There's two things and we're done this morning, I promise. I told David in the back I'd be done by noon. And I don't want a room full of little kids come screaming out here at us, so I'll be quick. It's with delight. He gets off the ark and there's worship. Go to chapter 8 and verse 20. The Bible says, Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The fullest joy that you can have is to live knowing and doing the promises of God, living in His presence, living in worship to Him. Delight in daily obedience. Delight in doing the things that you know God would have you do from His Word every day. The sorrowful Christian is one who, rather than living by faith in Jesus Christ, exercising their choices unto godliness, instead chooses to make themselves happy in themselves. Well, this just makes me happy. I want to do this. What does God want me to do? They focus their feelings 
They focus, excuse me, on their feelings and their flesh instead of faith in Almighty God. Noah said no to those things for decades building the ark. He said no to them in his journey on the ark. And in coming off the ark, the first thing he delights in is being in God's presence or offering the proper element of worship that was prescribed at the garden gate that Abel got and Cain and his line that was just destroyed did not. The second thing that we find in the delight is not just that, but the rainbow. I love the rainbow. I truly and deeply hate that the rainbow has been corrupted in our modern day. But the rainbow itself is a beautiful picture given by God. Not only could he delight in God's presence, but he could delight in God's promises as he looked up into the sky. Noah's faith allowed him to delight in God, but it allowed God also to delight in him. God sets the rainbow as the token and pledge of the covenant, he says in chapter 9. The rainbow is a product of a sunshine and storm. It's a New Testament principle. It's a product of light and water. The light of the gospel and the water of the washing of the word. There should be truly a rainbow in your heart every day. The rainbow is a product of that. It reminds us in its seven colors of the manifold grace of God. It depicts the bridge between heaven and earth, for it comes from the sky to the earth. It demonstrates in its symbolism the twofold gift that God gives to man in salvation, His Son and His Holy Spirit. It embodies His complete nature, for there are seven colors in the spectrum of light. No more, no less. He is God. It's a wonderful picture when you look up at the next one. The rainbow should still delight those of faith, that God keeps His promises. But the second reward that He gives us is not just with delight. He rewards us with duty. Opportunities, we might say. What were the two responsibilities, two duties given to Him? If the first delight is in worship, the second one of duty is of work. My faith rewards me with purpose, something to do. His first duty was to multiply. Verse 1 of chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Can I say to you, if you have faith in Jesus Christ and you've walked into or come into the newness of life that is yours in Jesus Christ, your job also is to be fruitful and multiply. It's to find other people and share this faith with them. His second duty was to manage. Beginning in verses 5, 6, and 7, I've preached this on patriotic Sundays or days where we look at human government and our government in this country. We find the basic rule of government given right here. God does not give us which form of government. We don't need to have, he doesn't care if we have a monarchy or a democracy or a republic. He doesn't even care if we're a socialist state of republics. Government, whatever form it is, has to do these three things that are listed here. He doesn't give us a form of government. He gives us a purpose of government. Here's what he says in verses 6 and 7. Human government should promote life. It's important. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Well, that sounds like death to me. No, no, listen. You protect life when you have the threat that if you kill someone, you're going to cost your life. You're forfeiting yours. You protect a whole lot of... The problem in our country, by the way, just as an aside, we've gone so lenient on all sorts of crime that everybody commits crime because there's no punishment for it anymore. 
And I don't want a stump speech here. I'm not running for any office. I'm simply saying the Bible's always very clear. A lot of people corrupt the simplicity of the Word of God, but the Bible itself is very clear. Look, protect life. If you are in the business of promoting life, then you're going to be fine as a government, whatever form you take. The next one, it says, is to protect liberty. And you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. The latter half of verse 7 where he says, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. He literally says, you can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> literally to these eight people, the world is your oyster because you're the only eight left. You can do whatever you want to do. But when you do it, bring forth abundantly. That means have the freedom and liberty to exercise yourself to the fullest of your ability. Stop being a taker and start being a giver and a doer. You bring forth abundantly in the earth. You multiply therein, but it's at your liberty to do it. The third element of him to manage was to pursue the Lord. Now, our founding fathers said that it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in our country. I would argue if we were truly, truly, truly a Christian nation, it would be life, liberty, and the pursuit of the Lord. That's what unfolds from verses 8 through 19. The faith of a believer ought to shape his or her world. It ought to. Trust me. The faith of those... In each political party shapes the world that we live in. Why doesn't the faith of true Christians, Bible believers, good people, people who love God and love their fellow man, why isn't it shaping the world? Well, I'd rather live in my hobbit hole and not come out. I'm not asking you to protest. That's not found in the Word of God either. I'm not asking you to storm the steps of the Bastille. I'm saying to you... Exercise your faith out in public. It's okay. You're allowed to. That's not the point of the message, so don't get that in your head as the only point of the message. The point is that of generating faith. In closing this morning, generating faith is found in Noah. It rescued him from doubt and death. It readied him for the journey and for the journey on the, on the ark with all of its discouragements, and then life after the ark in its full deliverance. And it rewarded him with delightful worship and dutiful work, all according to God's word. Friends, that's a life that's waiting for you by faith as well. So I close by asking three questions. Have you ever trusted Jesus Christ? He is the ark that carries you from death to life. Amen. Have you ever deepened your faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that as you trust Him more, He will deliver you from disappointment and discouragement into the life that is delightful? Third, have you seen the benefits of trusting Jesus? Do you joyfully engage in daily and then in what we're doing this morning, corporate worship, where we come around the Word of God and not just agree with each other, but agree with this book, what he said? Do you enjoy engaging in the work of the Lord? Listen, the faith that was generating life and life more abundantly in Noah is the same generating faith in each of us this morning. Father, help us, I pray, as we close our thoughts.